So even though we're not together at the church building, I can still picture the room. I normally stand up on the stage and I look out over the congregation, and a lot of you guys normally sit in the same spots. You know, there's Rosemary over here sitting near Marsha. I've got Don and Judy Pemberton down front, maybe with Doug and Therese. Over on this side, we've got the Garza family. They're really good about sitting close and tuning in for the whole lesson. Kent and Lisa over on the middle right, and I can just picture you guys. You're not here, but I can still picture you. And since we've been studying Romans in reverse, since we started with the churches in Rome, we learned their names in Romans 16. We learned some of their issues and their quirks and their preferences in Romans 14 and 15. I think we can start to picture the room ourselves. You can see maybe some of the wealthy Roman women sitting over here, anxious to hear what Paul has to say through his messenger, Phoebe, as she stands up to address the congregation. You can maybe picture some of Paul's closest friends like Aquila and Priscilla, uh, Andronicus and Junia. They're probably sitting down front, close, tuning in, excited to hear what Paul has to say. Maybe there's the meat eaters on this side and the uh, vegetarians on this side. Maybe Jews and Gentiles with their tensions and how to get along. They're, maybe they're not sitting together. They might be separated on different sides of the room. We can start to picture these people. We can see them in our minds. Maybe there's some of the, the bad boys sitting in the very back with their vape pens and their leather jackets. By the way, vape pens are not cool. You shouldn't use vape pens. But leather jackets are always cool, and they always will be cool. So you should get a leather jacket as soon as possible. But maybe these are the zealots that we read about in Romans chapter 13. These are the ones who said, I'm not going to pay my taxes. We're going to stick it to the man. And remember, Paul says, no, don't do that. That's just creating problems. It's quite a group. We can start to picture the church now. And the people who needed to hear words like the ones that Paul will share in chapters 9 through 11 are going to start to come into view for us. In these three chapters, Paul is going to answer a lot of their questions and concerns. And in doing so, he draws heavily from the Old Testament scriptures. There are over 30 Old Testament references in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He quotes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Malachi. He's in the law. He's in the prophets. He's in the writings. He's in Proverbs. He is all over the place. And it's easy to get lost if you don't know these stories by heart or if you can't easily recall them. But ultimately, the big headline of this letter remains the same. Paul tells them, love one another. Be one in Christ and work together for the sake of the gospel. But as we've seen, there were many opportunities for Jews and Gentiles to feel confused about their status before God uh, and with one another. And remember the historical context here. In 49 AD, uh, the Roman governor Claudius pronounced an edict that expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Just get these guys out of here. They're a problem. So they were kicked out. And then when the power changed, around 51 in the years following, the Jews were allowed to come back under the reign of the emperor Nero. So while they were gone, the churches in Rome became largely Gentile. And now they came back and they're looking around going, what have you guys done with the place? I thought that this was a Jewish thing. Jesus was a Jew and we were meeting and we were gathering mostly Jews. What happened while we were gone? 
And we see some of the resulting conflicts in 14 and 15 in the message that Justin led for us a few weeks ago. And as I think about what's going on in our world today, I imagine something similar is going to happen once the shelter-in-place orders have been lifted and people start to go back maybe to organizations they work with or their, their workplace. They might look around and go, okay, well, I'm going to get back to work like I used to do. Somebody might come in and say, oh, you don't do that work anymore. That's Gene's responsibility. And you go, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to go sit at my desk and, and work on some other stuff. Oh, no, no, that's not your desk anymore. That's Gene's desk now. And you're going, who is Gene? What happened? Well, I was gone. This is crazy. Well, this is the tension that Paul speaks into when he shares his heart for the Jewish people. And Jews and Gentiles were both wondering, in light of recent changes, what is the status of God's chosen people? This, these were the people of the promise. This was God's chosen ones. Did God forget about them? Well, Romans 9 is Paul showing the people the fact that Jesus is accepted by only a few Jews, but rejected by most Jews. This was something that was to be expected. He's telling them that they shouldn't be surprised at what's happening now, but what is going on is perfectly explained if you look in the right places in the scriptures. So he starts by reminding them that God has always chosen people from among Abraham's seed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of Abraham's descendants will be the ones to bear the blessing. He says, remember the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac got the blessing and not Ishmael. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob got the blessing and Esau did not. He's reminding them that God has always worked through the few, but not necessarily everybody will accept the responsibility that God gives his chosen people. And then he cites Isaiah 49, or 29 and 45, and then he goes to that passage in Jeremiah 18 about the potter and the clay, and he starts to remind people that God doesn't just throw out something that doesn't work. When it comes to his people, he doesn't just quit on them. But what God might do is reform and remake the clay. And so it may seem different than it was before, but God hasn't just thrown it out. It's not like a finished pot that got smashed. It's still a soft, moldable lump of clay that God is working with. And he reminds them that God has always let people choose whether or not to obey him. But that also means that if you choose not to obey him, God will let you experience the consequences that go along with that. And in doing so, he cites Hosea, and he reminds them of the passage where he says, you were once not my people. You chose not to be my people, but now I'm going to recover you, and you are my people. You were once not loved, but now you are loved. And he connects this to the Gentiles, and he says, they were once far away, but God is bringing them near through Jesus Christ. In fact, all of what's happening now is happening since the resurrection and because of what Jesus has done. It's not a new thing, he tells them. This is what God said he was going to do all along. You're just not remembering the right parts of the story. And this reminds me of an experience that I have with my own kids as we try to teach them certain ways to behave and as we implement discipline for bad behavior. One example is that my girls kind of have always had a problem sitting through the dinner meal. We want them to sit at the table have conversation, eat their food, but don't get up. Unless you have to go to the bathroom or something, just stay at the table. They've always had a problem with just getting up and wandering away. They'll go into the living room and do pirouettes and look at themselves in the mirror. And we go, what are you doing? Sit down and finish your meal. Got to the point where we said, okay, if you sit through the entire dinner meal, if there's dessert, you can have dessert. 
But if you don't, if you get up for no reason, then you don't get dessert. And sometimes they'll still get up and they'll wander away and then they'll come back. And when it's dessert time, we say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't get dessert. And they'll say, what? Why not? <laughs> we'll say, because of what we told you. If you get up, the consequence is no dessert. And they'll still say, that's not fair. And we go, that is the very definition of fairness. We told you that this was going to happen. Just like my kids forget or disregard the consequences that we spelled out for them, so Israel was warned and they're experiencing consequences for things that they were warned about. But here's the good news for Israel and for my kids. Even though I say, no dessert for you tonight, I still tuck my kids in. I still sing them songs before bed. I still read them stories. We still do the normal bedtime routine. I still love my kids. And the next night, if they sit through dinner without getting up, they can have dessert. They'll get another shot. And the same is true with God and his people. And that's where Paul goes in Romans chapter 10. But in order to understand Romans 10, you have to see that he references Deuteronomy 30 several times here. And if you know what's going on there, it makes more sense. I'll summarize it for us. Deuteronomy chapters 29, or 28, 29, and then 30 kind of spell out the terms of God with his people. He reminds them, if you obey, you're going to get the land. God is going to be with you. You're going to prosper. All of these good things are going to happen. But if you leave God, if you rebel, if you disobey, there are going to be all these negative consequences. And the things that I promised you, somebody else is going to get. They're going to get the land. They're going to get the homes. They're going to be in charge. But Deuteronomy chapter 30 says, even after all that happens, and by the way, it did happen. Israel rebelled. They went into exile. They lost their power. They lost their nation. Everything was kind of up in the air. God says, I'm still going to make a way for you. I'm still going to let you return, and I'm going to give you this future promise. Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. You still get dessert. But the section that Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30 in Romans 10 is a section that says it's not even that you have to come and find it. This salvation is going to come to you. You don't have to go up to the heavens to discover it. You don't have to go deep down into the sea and search for it. It's going to come to you. And what Paul is telling them is that is Jesus. God has come to you. Salvation has come to those who believe. The Gentiles, if they believe, they can access this salvation. The Jews, if they believe, they can access this salvation. It's available for everyone in Jesus Christ. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. 
As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is what Christians do when they're baptized. And Paul talks more about baptism in Romans chapter 6, which since we're going Romans in reverse, we'll get to that in a few weeks. Baptism is realizing that Jesus is Lord. It's saying that Jesus is Lord. And then it's living your life like you actually think it's true. Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is God in the flesh. That he is God, is in the Lord, but it also means that he's my Lord. He's the Lord of my life, and he's in charge. And no matter the unforeseen circumstances of the church in Rome, and no matter the unseen circumstances of the church in Livermore, Jesus is it. So now in Romans chapter 11, it begins by asking this question, did God reject his people? All these Gentiles are flooding in. What does that mean for Israel? And the answer is no. God didn't reject his people. Like always, God is using this situation to draw people to him. And Paul uses this image in this chapter about an olive tree representing Israel, his faithful and chosen people whose roots have always been connected to him. But he says that there were these wild shoots outside of the olive tree that when they believed in Christ, they became grafted onto the tree of Israel by God. He brought them in and said, okay, you can be part of the tree now. But though some Jews and Gentiles believed, many Jews did not believe that Jesus was the risen Messiah. And so they're like these branches that have fallen off the tree. And Paul himself knows all about this because he was one of those fallen branches until he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was taught the faith and he was baptized and he became a believer. And so Paul was able to be reattached to the original tree. And this is his hope for all Jews as well. Now, the problem with the church in Rome is that there are cranky Jewish Christians who are saying, that's our tree. Why do you get to be on here? And then there's some mean-spirited Gentile Christians who are saying, aha, look who's on the tree and look who's on the ground. Paul comes in and he says, you guys need to knock that off. Gentiles, you're lucky to be here, so don't be a jerk about it. And throughout this section, 9, 10, and 11, Paul has shown the genuine concern that he has for the Israelites, these fallen branches. In 9, 2, and 4, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could, could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul's hope is that the Israelites, the fallen branches, will see the Gentiles, these ingrafted branches, See them experiencing closeness to God and want to return back to the root, the source of life. So as Paul sits down to write this letter, he pictures the room as well. He sees Jewish people who feel entitled to God's promises, and they think that they're right with God just because of their adherence to the law. And he sees Gentiles who have found Christ, who have become grafted on to the tree. They've, they've these adopted sons of the family of Israel, 
and they're becoming prideful. And the same way that the Jews were once prideful because of their status with God. And something that the Jewish people and now the Gentiles repeatedly got wrong with their relationship with God is that it only existed to bless them. From the time of the patriarchs, it was always God saying, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations. With God's blessing comes responsibility to be God's image in the world. We need to demonstrate, we need to reflect his love, his patience, his compassion, his grace, and his mercy. Jesus says we are the light of the world, and the responsibility of the light is to illuminate everything around it. But religious people back then, and now as well, sometimes get comfortable, and they start to keep all of the light to themselves. And that's not what light is for. And it's kind of silly when you try to keep light all to yourself. To illustrate this, I want to give you a little two-minute project that I want you to do. With the people that you're watching this with, or by yourself, you can do it. What I want you to do is take two minutes and just practice being a light hog. And what I mean by that is go to a light source in your house, maybe a lamp, or maybe you can just take out your smartphone and you can turn on the flashlight feature. And I want you to try to make it so that as much light as possible gets on you, but not on the people around you. I want you to block the light from them and I want you to keep it all to yourself. Uh, you might use a blanket to cover up the, the lamp and the light. And you may draw the shades, whatever you can think of. Just experience this for two minutes. Go ahead and do that now. Here's an example of what that looked like in my house when I ran this idea by my girls. I want to thank you if you participated in this light hog experiment. Uh, I hope uh, I don't owe anybody a lamp or anything because it got broken. If it did, that's on you, not me. Ha <laughs> ha uh, Hopefully you experienced in this experiment how silly it is to try to keep light to yourself. Light is for sharing. If you have it, why wouldn't you let other people get in on it? This was the fight that they were having in Rome. People over here were saying, we have the light, the light is ours. And people saying, no, we have the light, we deserve the light. And Paul comes in and says, stop it. Light is given to everybody by God for everybody. The light that we have in Christ is supposed to illuminate people who are stumbling around in the darkness. He said, don't let this become a matter of pride. Coming to Christ shouldn't be a reason for you to get arrogant. Paul says in Romans 11:25, I want you to understand what God is doing so that you don't become conceited. That applies to you Jews. That also applies to you Gentiles. Today, the tension in our church may not be between Jew and Gentile, but I still think that this is a healthy reminder for us. If you have faith, don't keep it to yourself. Don't be prideful in it. And with that in mind, I have three thoughts for us regarding how we can increase our understanding so that we can decrease temptation to become conceited. First thought is understanding God's faithfulness. Paul goes to great lengths in the this, in this section that we're looking at today to say that this isn't something new. This isn't playing out the way that people thought it would, but it was all there in the scriptures. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Romans, uses an illustration about a friend who was remodeling their house. They had this great vision. They, they talked it all out with their contractor, and they said, this is what we want to do. But as renovations started being made, 
and plans started to develop, their, their contractor kind of went rogue and disregarded their original wishes and said, no, we're going to do this instead. And his friends had to go back to the contractor and say, hey, 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 we're kind of gotten off course here. This is not what we talked about. Let's go back to the original plan, look at it and say, this is the way it's supposed to be. And it, they talked about it and it all got worked out. But Paul, what Paul shows Jews concerning God's faithfulness is that there are things that you can see in scripture all along that God said, if you do this, this will happen. But if you fall away, there's an opportunity to come back. So the question of whether or not God is faithful that people are asking is yes. Religious people then were wondering, is God faithful to his promises? Did he give up on us? Did his plan not pan out the way that he was supposed to? Did he take that lump of clay and start over? And Paul says, no. You may not see it, but look, this is all evidence of God doing what he planned all along. He uses the Old Testament scriptures to interpret what was going on in Christ and says, this is a good thing. God is at work. God is more faithful than ever. And I think that there's some people today asking that same question. Did God forget about us? Is God still faithful? Did he leave us? Did we do something unforgivable in light of all that's going on? And I think we can hear Paul's response saying, no, God is still faithful. He was faithful then and he's faithful now. Despite this strange new normal that we've been living in for the past couple weeks, I keep hearing stories about ways that the gospel of Jesus is breaking through. I hear examples of people taking care of their neighbors, doing grocery store runs, looking out for one another. There's open doors for conversations with people that we didn't really have relationships with before. Our online connection is skyrocketing. I talk to other minister friends of mine and they're saying their church attendance is higher than it's ever been. Now think about that. We can't get people to show up on a Sunday morning and sit through a church service, but they're tuning in online. People are coming to know Christ in new ways, and God is definitely at work among us. So that's the first thing, is we need to understand God's faithfulness. The second thing is understand the scriptures. God's whole heart is found in the pages of scripture. But sometimes we don't see the whole heart of God because we're only focusing on certain scriptures. And that's okay. Sometimes they can be uplifting. They can be key verses that we hold on to that, that help us through the day. But sometimes when people only choose to focus on, let's say, the scriptures about God being forgiving, then they conclude, well, God's just a big pushover. Or if certain other people only focus on the scriptures of God that talk about his discipline or the punishments of God, then they think, oh, he's just a tyrant. But that's not true. And Paul reminds the people in this section, he walks them through lots of scriptures to show God is a lot of things. And he reminds them of some hard truths that maybe they wanted to forget because they weren't looking at the scriptures that they needed to. He reminds them that there are consequences for rebelling against God and that God will allow his people to experience these consequences. And he reminds them that God never promised that everyone would respond to him or receive the blessings of his promises, but that God has always worked through a few people, the marginal, the weak, the remnant. But we also find out in this section, and we're reminded of what we learn in Exodus 34, the God Creed, that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousands and forgiving 
wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Paul reminds us to consider both the sternness and the kindness of God. So maybe a challenge for us this week is to expand what we read when it comes to God. You can read all of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Like I said, this is a beautiful section with lots there. And it'll, it's Paul walking people through what God has done, what God is doing, and this reminder that he's still faithful. I'd encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. These warnings that God gives to Israel. And then this promise of even if you fall away, God is going to make a way for you to come back. And see how that points to Jesus Christ. I encourage you with the time that you have this week to read all of Romans. Read the whole letter in one sitting. Because that's how the church would have heard it. I read it through in one sitting and it took me about 50 minutes. I read it out loud. For you it'll probably take not quite as long. But I read it in the New Living Translation. And that's a little bit wordier, so it takes a little bit longer, but it's very conversational and it's easy to understand Paul's train of thought in this translation. Or one thing you can do this week is memorize Romans 11, 33 through 36, this celebration of the mystery of God that Paul ends this section with. And the third thing that's good to understand this week is understand the blessing. Another way of putting this is don't be a light hog. Don't Keep what God has revealed to you in Christ all to yourself, but be willing to share that with people. Hearing this message is a good chance for us to ask ourselves, do we have the same heart for the lost that Paul has? Do we love people who need to know Jesus? Do our hearts go out to them? Are we willing to go to great lengths to share Christ to them? I think of a lot of the the moms and the dads and the grandparents in our church, who are on their knees daily praying to the Lord for children or grandchildren who have not come back to Jesus. Maybe who were raised in the church but said, nah, I don't really need that. I don't need God in my life. And they're just lifting up their prayers and pouring out their heart and saying, God, I want them to know you. I don't even care if they come to this church. I don't care if they come to the church building, but Lord, let their hearts return to you because they're missing out on so much. I think about their faithfulness. And I wonder, do I have that same heart for the lost? Am I going to find opportunities to share the life and the person of Jesus Christ with people? I read about a professor, New Testament professor, named Scott McKnight. And he told us a story about every semester that he taught a class on the life of Jesus, he would see maybe eight to ten students give their lives to Jesus. Every semester. That's like eight to 10 baptisms every four months. You hear that and go, man, that's exciting. You know, what was his trick? What was his method? How did he do this? And Scott McKnight is a brilliant teacher and he's a great communicator. But if you ask him, he would say, it's nothing I did. It's just Jesus. I sat down with them and I told them about Jesus and they fell in love. They were drawn to his life and his love and his lordship. And they said, I want to follow him. I want to find peace in Jesus Christ. I want to be reconciled to the Lord. And that's our job as believers too, to tell the story of Jesus who loved us, who saved us, who extended God's salvation, both to the Jew and the Gentile, who reached out to those who were far away from him. If you get the chance, just tell somebody the good news, that death was conquered by Jesus Christ that they pulled him off the cross, put him in the tomb, went to find him on Resurrection Sunday, and he wasn't there because he was alive. And there's hope in that. That's our reconciliation with our Creator. 
God's action throughout history, in Paul's church, and in our world today is often mysterious. We often don't know what God is doing until he's already done it. We look back and go, wow, how come we didn't see it? And even then, sometimes we don't always catch what it is that God is up to. But Paul ends Romans 9, 10, and 11 with a section that acknowledges God's greatness, his bigness, and whose mind no one can fathom. And we're all called to trust the wisdom of God and to seek his heart. And that's where I want to end this morning. I want to read these last few verses celebrating God's greatness and the great mystery that he is for us. So I'm going to read these verses, and then I'm going to invite you to sing with me a song that we call the doxology, which literally means a study in glory. It's basically another way of saying marveling at the mystery and the greatness of God. So we're going to read this, and then we're going to sing together. Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hope you all have a great week. Boom shakalaka. Thank <laughs> you.